0: Well, good morning to you all. Um, I am not preaching on um, our eternal home, um, but I'm going to talk about twins. So um, if you all have been following along, that probably was um, expected. Um, Well, let's, um, anybody who considers themselves a child, let's um, have them come forward to the um, front row over here, and we'll just have a little children's class to begin with. No, there may not be very many, but so... Um, so the verse I want to talk about this morning is up on the board up here. So, um, it is a verse that says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Have you all wondered what that verse meant? How many of you all have brothers? Well, all of you. Well, this is wonderful. So this is applicable. So we're going to be talking about a pair of brothers and they're not just any brothers, they are twins, so, how many twins can you all think of from the Bible? So, I could only think of three pairs of twins in the Bible Victoria, Jacob, and Esau, Jacob and Esau are twins. And those are actually the ones we're going to talk about. They're the ones that, that we know the most about. Can you think of any other twins? So, some people think there's, a, there's um, people called Huzz and Buzz in the Bible, and some people think they were twins just because their names rhyme. And you know, have you, do you all know any, any twins? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. What what kinds of names do twins get? Almost the same, right? Sometimes people rhyme the names. So like um, Moses and Hoses. No, they wouldn't name them, things like that. That would be silly. Um, but I I um, knew twins that were named Austin and Justin. Those almost rhyme, right? And... Um, my brother's wife, my, my brother Matthew, his wife was twins. So she had a sister who was born a, almost the same time as she was, and their names were Beth and Betty. So I don't think they knew they were having twins at the time. And I found an article from the 1880s uh, from England that talked about naming twins, and it suggested that a fun thing to do... So this is just a little tip. So one day when you all have twins... Um, You can do this. So a fun thing to do was to give your, your children the same name but reversed. So they said there was a James Reginald and a Reginald James. And that sounded terribly confusing to me. But anyway, that's something. And then they also said that a recent gardener had named his twin sons Peter the Great Wright. So Wright was their last name. Peter the Great and William the Conqueror Wright. So they were both named after famous people. And that sounded unusual to me, too. So there were other twins in the Bible, though. So we know that there was a lady named Tamar, and she had twins. And we know that Thomas was a twin. How do we know that Thomas was a twin? Yes, Elliot. Didymus, that's right. Didymus means twin. And some people think... That his twin brother was Matthew, because their names are always together in the list, but you don't know that for sure. So so don't tell anybody that I told you that. So we're gonna find out in the Bible passage today that Jacob and Esau, even though they were twins, they did not get along very well. Do you get along well with your brothers and sisters? Not always, right? There's sometimes that they can be aggravating. So and I will be honest, my younger brother, so I'm sort of like Esau, right, because I'm the older brother, and I have a younger brother who's about three years younger than me, and I did not get along with him when we were young. He was an aggravation. And so I would definitely not have sold him my birthright for a pot of stew, but... He would do things like he would... We would come down for breakfast in the morning and he would wait till I came down for breakfast and then he would put on a matching shirt to me. Can you imagine anything worse than matching your brother at school? You girls can't imagine that. It was terrible. And he did it just because he knew it would bother me. That's the worst of it. So fortunately, he has received salvation and he he doesn't match me much anymore. So anyway when I read this verse up here on the board, I thought that it said, a brother is born to cause adversity. So what does adversity mean? It means bad times. So if you're going through adversity, it means um, like your shoelace came undone and you're tripping on it. That's adversity. So as as I've come to be older, I realize that brothers can do a lot of things to help and encourage you when you are in adversity. So their brothers are helpful. Um, And it makes me sad that Jacob and Esau didn't get along any better than they did. But I hope that you all are making an effort to get along with your brothers and sisters, because when you grow up, you can be good friends with them. So that's all that I have. So you all can go back to your parents. So, twins. I mentioned already, but there are only a few sets of twins in the Bible. Perez and Tira, which were the sons of Tamar, Jacob and Esau, and the apostle Thomas was a twin. So, why aren't there more twins in the Bible? Well, I'm going to speculate and say twins probably didn't survive as much as um, singletons, just because it's just harder to carry um, twins to term and you didn't have neonatal ICUs back then and things like that. And so they just didn't make it. Um, So we don't don't have a lot of twins in the Bible, although every time they mention them, it seems like there's sort of interesting stories associated with them. So Malachi 1 verses 2 and 3 says, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say in what way Have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. So we're going to be looking at this a little bit more later on in this message, but we do know that God chose Jacob over Esau. And we can speculate as to why Jacob was chosen, um, but Jacob wasn't perfect and he had to have a lot of work done in his life in order to bring him to the place where God can use him. And I think it's important to note as well that Esau wasn't truly hated. Genesis 29 verse 31 uses the same word. It says, and when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, and Jacob didn't hate Leah, he expressed more love for Rachel, and Leah felt, comparatively speaking, like he didn't love her. But he still loved her and he cared about her. And I think that Esau was hated by God in the same way. God was expressing more love to Jacob. But certainly after everything that had transpired, Jacob had bought his birthright, stolen his blessing, and didn't seem to have anything negative happen to him. It would have felt pretty bad to Esau. And he would have said, you know, nothing bad ever happens to Jacob. He does all this terrible stuff, and he just coasts along. There's a lot of uncertainty in this story that we would perceive at first. So reading Jewish authors on the subject of Jacob and Esau, we do not see them unified in understanding who was serving who in the prophecy. In fact, Esau seems to prosper before Jacob. So There is a a genealogy of Esau, and it talks about the rulers that descended from him that were ruling in Edom long before the children of Israel ever left Egypt. So we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 25. We're going to read verses 20 through 28. And this is uh, the story of Rebekah's pregnancy. So Genesis 25. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan, Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together with her, within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. After his Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them, so the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So we begin here with a story of another woman struggling to conceive, And we don't know a whole lot about the situation. We only know it took about 20 years from the time that Isaac and Rebecca got married for her to have a child. And that's a long time. So not as long as Abraham and Sarah waited to conceive Isaac, but still long enough that I know it was weighing on Rebecca's mind. And it's interesting that we don't find Isaac trying to figure out alternative ways to get an heir. I don't know the reason for this. Maybe Isaac was just a lot more passive than his father was, or Rebecca was more passive than Sarah was, or maybe they just learned lessons from Abraham and Sarah's situation. But regardless, the solution that he found was to plead for God on behalf of his wife. And this is a wonderful little tidbit. It's such a blessing to see a husband who sees his wife's distress and does not respond by complaining about how emotional she is or trying to get her to be more like him. He simply prayed for her in her distress. And sometimes I hear people say things like, my wife has issues. And it's almost as though you know how, okay, so when doctors get sick, what do they tell doctors? Physician, heal thyself. They always say that. Uh, like, well, it's a virus, you know. I can't, can't heal myself of a virus. Uh, and it's, woman, fix thyself. You know, go out there and do something and come back to me whenever you're all whole again. And yet, there is a blessing when we realize that a husband and wife are One. And that means a number of things, but one of the most important things is that my wife's distress is my distress too. I am not okay with her feeling anguish alone. And if I can't help her through it, I will at least make certain that she knows that I am with her and I'm praying for her. And I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that this does not just apply to married couples. But we would do well to intercede with God on behalf of the people that we care about. When somebody in this church community, the people who are here, the people who are not here, is struggling, we need to lift them to the throne of grace and cry out on their behalf. And the end result is that God works something wonderful. Two wonderful things, right? She asks for a child and she gets two for the price of one. I'm not sure she was real excited about that. So twins. Before the time of ultrasound, many times the first clue that doctors or midwives had that there were two babies inside was that the first baby came out and there's still something moving on the inside. And in the church I was growing up in, um, this was back in the, in the 90s, there was a, a lady um, who was expecting and she went to her doctor and she told the doctor, you know, I'm, this was her second time, um, Second pregnant, she said, I'm sure I'm, I'm sure I'm bigger this time than I was last time. And the doctor said, oh, get out of here. That's what women always say. I'm showing sooner. And he said, don't worry about it. And um, they didn't get an ultrasound because of cost. And so after the first baby was born, the nurse still could hear a baby's heartbeat. And she said, doctor, there's another one in there. So it was that Linda and Brian went home with two baby girls when they thought they were only bringing one home from the hospital. But Rebecca had a hard time of it. This was a difficult pregnancy. So twin pregnancies are hard on mothers. Often they have worse morning sickness. Um, They're bigger than what they are because they've got twice as many babies inside, and sometimes they have contractions earlier than they would otherwise. And here we find Rebecca asking the question, if all is well, why am I like this? Now, this is her first time expecting babies, and she didn't know, but she said, this just doesn't feel right. And, of course, her mom was a long ways away. You know, moms always help out, right? Because you can call your mom on the phone and say, well, you know, what, what should it be like? And mom can say something. But no, I can't call Heron on the phone. They didn't have cell phones back then. it's a shocking thing to learn. So she knew that things weren't normal. She didn't know what normal was, but she knew it wasn't normal. And so she went to inquire of the Lord. And no one really knows what this means. So it could have meant that she uh, went and talked to some prophet or oracle about what was going on. Most likely, it just meant that she prayed desperately to God saying, I'm feeling awful and please help me get through this. Help me understand why I feel so bad. And so God revealed something to Rebecca here. First of all, he told her she was expecting twins. And this could be a shock to anybody hearing this sort of news. I remember I had a, a mother that um, when I was in Indiana, I delivered babies. And I, my brother would do ultrasounds for me. And so I sent her to, to see my brother to get an ultrasound done. And he, um, he put the ultrasound on and she rubbed it around for a little while, and he said, looks like there's two in there. And she passed out. It just shocked her so much. She just couldn't believe it. I think she came to herself eventually. They got her something to drink, and she woke up again, and all was well. But she, Rebecca doesn't seem like she passed out here. She um, maybe was made of sterner stuff than that. But more than that, God told her that there are two different peoples in her womb. And of course, that makes sense. Like Twins are two different people. But God meant something more than that, right? He meant that descending from these two men that were going to grow up from her babies would be two different people groups. Esau would eventually become the father to the Edomites, while Jacob would become father to the nation of Israel. And God told her, that one of the peoples would be stronger than the other and that the older would serve the younger. And it's interesting to note that when Isaac blessed Esau later on, he specifically told him, it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. And reading a book by um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, rabbis aren't always sure what to make of this. Some, Some rabbis say that even though it sounds like um, the younger will uh, rule over the older. Maybe it doesn't quite mean that, but regardless, it seems to be something out of the normal, and so we can say it's probably that Edom was going to serve um, Israel. So the brothers are born, and we see right away that they are fraternal. So there's two kinds of twins. There's identical twins, and there's fraternal twins, and sometimes you see twins, and you can't tell them apart, and that's because the Uh, they look exactly alike, but also parents often dress them alike. So they noticed from beginning that Esau was covered in hair, and that's what Esau meant, hairy. Jacob, on the other hand, came out grabbing his brother's heel, and Jacob was a name that he was given, which meant heel grabber um, or deceiver, supplanter. So we see two other points of separation for them as they grew older. Esau was a hunter, while Jacob was someone who didn't go far afield. And maybe we could say that Esau was a manly man while Jacob was a studious type. But the second thing, and the more concerning thing for the story, is that Isaac had a favorite son, that was Esau, and Rebekah had a favorite son, that was Jacob. And the problem here is not that the two parents had different favorites. And maybe that's, that feels like what we would say is the, um, the problem. You know, if Rebecca and Isaac had both had Jacob as a favorite, everything would have been wonderful. But it wouldn't have been wonderful. It is not good for parents to have favorites, even if they're the same favorite. So here there was a conflict between Rebecca and Isaac because they had different favorites. But even if they'd had the same favorite, it would not have been good for Jacob, and it would not have been good for Esau either. So I think it's tough because many parents want to be even-handed, and yet their children still perceive them as having favorites. So I've known children who were uh, considered to be teacher's pets. So this is not parents, but the teacher, teacher seems to like this child better than the other children. And often the issue is simply that they don't get in trouble as much as the other children. So they if, if you are better behaved, you often are the teacher's pet, just because you don't get in trouble as much. If you get in trouble all the time, it's, you know, the teacher's aggravated with you. And the same thing probably happens in homes. But it isn't clear as to why the parents here treated their children differently. It just says that Isaac liked the game that Esau brought in. So they say the, man, the way to man's heart is through his stomach. And maybe Rebecca liked the fact that Jacob was around the tents and could help out with the cooking responsibility. So let's go on to Genesis 25, verses 29 through 34. This is the stew. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I'm about to die. So, what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. And then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So, what is a birthright? Well, the eldest son was the one who would lead out after the death of his father. And you could probably talk to Dama about this sort of thing, because I think in Nigeria and um, their tribes, they often have more of this kind of structure than what we have in this country. Um, But on the death of his father, all of the father's possessions would be divided among his sons, and the oldest son would get two portions. So in the case of Isaac... His wealth would be divided into three portions, and two-thirds of it would go to the oldest son, that would be Esau, and one-third would go to the younger son. And so after this swap, Jacob would get two-thirds, and Esau would get one-third. So Esau came in exhausted from hunting. He was famished. And I can imagine just what he sounded like, because my children are often on the edge of starvation, So this may be shocking to you all, but we seldom feed our children until they are ravenous with hunger. I'm joking, of course. Uh, Sometimes it seems like they've no sooner finished eating before they're asking what is going to be served at the next meal. You all probably don't deal with this in your homes. So Esau came in and he was really hungry And Jacob was cooking up a stew of lentils. The Hebrew word here for stew is nezit, and it would have indicated a little thicker result compared to a soup. So the Jews would have used grains like barley with beans, lentils, or peas, onions, garlic for flavoring, and they would eat this alongside bread, which they had with every meal. And the interesting thing is that lentils are only red before they are fully cooked. So once they're fully cooked, they turn yellowish or brown in color. So many people see this as saying that Esau was not willing to wait for the stew to be fully cooked, but he scarfed it down half raw. And I, I remember at a, um, at a potluck that someone had brought black beans, and, and somehow they didn't cook the black beans all the way through. And um, I think you have to soak black beans, like the dried black beans, before you before you cook them. And then anyway, so they were really crunchy. They, I thought they'd put walnuts in their, um, in their rice and beans. And I said something to Elaine afterwards. I said, did they put walnuts in that? And she said, no, it just wasn't fully cooked. So I can't imagine eating this stuff that was just only partly cooked. But regardless, Esau wanted this stew and he wanted it before it was done. And Jacob refused to give it to him unless Esau first gave him the birthright As we've already mentioned, the birthright was something that would make Esau the head of the family upon the death of his father and give him two-thirds of his father's possessions upon his father's death. And the story ends by saying that Esau ate and drank and then went away, not bothered at all by the deal that he'd made. So he despised his birthright. Now, I don't think Esau was actually starving to death. So he was probably hungrier than my children usually get. But I have recently read the book, Unbroken, and it tells a story, among other things, about two American pilots who survived on a raft for 47 days, and they made it by catching a few fish, birds, and capturing rainwater. And I guarantee that if you'd approached them on day 30 or day 40, they would have done anything, including give away their birthright in exchange for a pot of stew. They were literally starving to death. But when they got off the raft, they weren't walking. They had extremely weak muscles, and people who are starving to death don't act like Esau. They don't eat a a bowl of stew and then just go walking off into the the distance. So Esau was really exaggerating here. He was definitely not at death's door, even though he thought for whatever reason he was. Because he said, you know, if if I don't get this stew, I'm going to die, and then that birthright will go to you anyway. So what difference? But. He was probably not going to die very quickly. So, lessons from this story. So, first of all, this story tells us something about the character of the two brothers. They had a poor relationship. So, Esau did not express any surprise that Jacob would attempt to use his hunger to gain an advantage over him. And I can't imagine doing this to one of my brothers. I I don't cook soup very often or stew. But if one of my brothers had showed up saying he was dying of hunger, after making fun of him for the fact that he wasn't really dying of hunger, I would have just given him some. And I wouldn't ask him what he has in his pockets or what he could give me to, to buy the soup me. I just would give it to him. But Jacob was ready to just take whatever advantage he could of Esau. Second, Esau was someone who lived in the present. So we've all known people like this, haven't we? These people overvalue present gratification over anything in the future. So I had a brother who could seldom sa- save money. As soon as he earned some money, he was thinking about what he could buy with that money. They had invented Legos back then. He thought about the, the Lego he could buy or he, you know, whatever else it was. And so he seldom ever had any money. I mean, he had the stuff that the money bought um, until it got lost. But this is the sort of person that Esau was. Esau lived in the present. And the third thing is that Jacob was a conniver. He was a sort of person that you simply didn't want to deal with because he would take advantage of you in any way that he possibly could. Proverbs 20 verse 14 says, It is good for nothing, cries the buyer, but when he has gone his way, then he boasts. If any of you all have been in a marketplace in Central America, you understand this concept. You go into the uh, stall and you say "Cuanto le vale?" and the um, the the person who's selling stuff will will come out and he'll he'll tell you you know "Veinte." He'll he'll tell you it's worth twenty dollars. Well, they don't have dollars in Central America. What do they do in El Salvador? But He'll tell you a, a high price, and then you'll say, Oh no, it's not it's definitely not worth that. Why that man down the at the other stall, he'll sell it to me for only sixteen, and then you haggle back and forth. He'll tell you about how this is better than the other man's thing. And then you you walk away and you you've got your, your deal and you're really proud of it. I've I've gotten a good deal. Now don't try this at TJ Maxx, it doesn't work there. So So Jacob is ready to get anything he can out of the people around him, even people that he's related to. You know, usually people sort of give a a free pass to the people around them that they're related to, but he was willing to deceive people if he thought he could get an advantage. I had a man once tell me that you can sell anyone something one time, but in order to get them to come back, you have to treat them well. So once somebody made a a business dealing with Jacob, they probably wouldn't come back to Jacob a second time and ask him to, to do another deal with them. They, they realized what sort of person Jacob was. So there's a big question, though, in this story, and we're going to talk a little bit about this time, and the next time I preach from the subject of Jacob and Esau, we're going to be talking then about the blessing. We'll talk about it some more. But what did Jacob gain from buying this birthright from Esau? And the answer is very little. So Jacob was born when Isaac was 60 years old, and Isaac lived to be 180 years old. So this means that Jacob was 120 years old when his father died. And he came into his birthright. In exchange for a little bit of extra sheep and cattle that he got after his father died, he had a terrible relationship with his father, was scared to death of his brother, and never saw his mother again. Was that worth it? Esau undervalued the birthright, but it seems as though Jacob overvalued it. Which was more important, his relationship with his family or the money. All the while, Jacob probably thought he had done something amazing, getting this birthright out of his brother. And Jacob did become wealthy in the end, but we need to ask ourselves if he became wealthy because of all his wheeling and dealing. Certainly, the birthright didn't do him any good when he was fleeing from his family's tents and he had to use a stone for his pillow. Jacob grew wealthy because God blessed him and not because he was deceptive. It's almost in spite of this deception. So I told you I would would touch a little bit on this again, but I think the question comes up, why did God choose Jacob over Esau? And I don't think we know the answer. So there are probably two dangers when we look at this story. The first is to believe that God randomly selects people. And this is sort of a Calvinist distortion. They say God just randomly chooses some people to be damned and some people to go to heaven, and you just don't know. The other danger, though, is to try to identify some wonderful qualities that Jacob had over Esau and say, you know, he was just a wonderful person, and God saw that inside him, and so that's why God chose him. When I look at this story, I see that Jacob and Esau were both problematic individuals. Neither one of them was focused on God in a relationship with him. Jacob was a deceiver. Esau was someone who didn't value important things. And maybe the only thing I could come down to is that Jacob was a little bit like the Apostle Paul. He had energy. And if God could just get him to focus that energy on the right things, he could use that whereas Esau just didn't have that kind of a focus. But I don't know. And we better not make the story say something that it doesn't intend to say. So we're going to just summarize some story, some lessons from this story. So first of all, husbands pray for your wives. 1 Peter verse 3 verse 7 says, "Husbands, likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel." And as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. And I think it's important to note what this passage does not say. So this passage does not say that wives are weak, emotional, or less intelligent than their husbands. It does not say that. The point is that the husbands are to treat their wives and their relationship with their wives as though they had something fragile and valuable. If you had a hand painted dish that is worth thousands and thousands of dollars, you are not going to stick that dish in the dishwasher. You may not even eat off that plate. You may put it in a special place. In the same way, we need to treat our wives as fragile and valuable. So, what does this verse say? First, it commands husbands to understand their wives. And I've heard lots of men act as though this is an impossible thing. I don't understand women, I don't understand my wife. But Peter says, don't let that stand in your way. Listen to her and try to understand her. This is a good thing. Second, realize that your wife is a fellow heir to the grace of life. Women are just as valuable in the kingdom of God as men are. As a husband, my relationship with God is only going to be as good as my relationship with my wife. And men don't realize this, but if they do not love their wives as they ought to, their prayers aren't going anywhere. This passage says that. And in our story today, Isaac grew to understand his wife's deep desire for children and pled to God on her behalf. Second thing is having favorite children is not helpful. So the sad thing is that Jacob did exactly the same thing with his own sons, didn't he? He should have known that it was what it was like to have a parent who valued one sibling over another, and yet he insisted on loving Rachel's children more than the children from his other wives. And I suppose you all know this, but it's not healthy for families to have a child or children who are more valued than others. Children are all different, and as we realize that, we will not treat them exactly the same but we will value them the same. So we can do our best to make sure that they know that we love them. So learn to value the important things in life. So we've said, um, husbands, pray for your wives. Don't have favorite children. Learn to value the important things in life. Jacob and Esau both valued the wrong things. Esau overvalued the urges of the moment over things that had longer-term value, and Jacob overvalued material things over relationships. And we see people in around us, we we see people in our churches who walk on both of these paths and get lost as a result. So I wonder how many people who struggle with self-control are like Esau. Somebody who's Struggling to lose weight and diets um, comes to a church carrion, and it's easy to tell yourself, "You know, it's not that big a deal. I'll just work on it next week." But the old saying is that you can't have your cake and eat it too. And most people spend their lives trying to figure out how to eat their cake and lose weight too. And that's a hard thing. So Milo has been talking about what induces change in our lives. And the most important thing is that we let God change our wants and desires. You don't have to want have to if you want to. There are lots of other people who are more careful with their money and spend their lives building fortunes. And I wouldn't say that wealthy people, by definition, have bad relationships, but if their lives have revolved around building up money that they have in the bank, they often do not value the relationships with the people around them enough. So we don't know when Jacob learned a better way. It it seems to me that he finally came to the end of himself when he was traveling back to Palestine, fleeing for Laban. His relationship with his father-in-law was just broken apart and suddenly heard that his brother Esau was coming to meet him with 400 men. And at this point, Jacob seems to have been beside himself. He split his group up into small parties and sent them on ahead. Each group was to tell Esau that they were present from Jacob to Esau. There on the other side of the Jabbok brook, Jacob spent a night without any of his entourage present. He was scared to death of Esau and was willing to give everything up just to see that the relationship would be ended and without his bloodshed. So I don't know that Jacob saw Esau as important. But here he was willing to give up all that material stuff he'd worked so hard to earn in order to see that relationship healed. Jesus told people in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The point is that you choose what you have a relationship with. And if you choose a relationship with money, you will by definition decrease your relationship with God and with the people around you. Final thing to consider is that God often does give sufficient material things to people who are serving him wholeheartedly. This is not a guarantee, and I don't want anyone going away from this saying, you know, John said that if you follow God's way, he'll make you rich. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I am saying that if we follow God's way, he will make sure that we are satisfied and that's a different thing, isn't it? In conclusion, Isaac and Rebecca's household was quite dysfunctional. They each had their favorite sons. They didn't communicate well or much as their sons got older. Isaac seems to have been passive, a little clueless about what was going on in his household, and Rebecca seems to have been deceptive and not open about her motivations. The end result was not good for either Jacob or Esau. And maybe the biggest thing that I see is that God sees not only who we are today, he also sees our potential for the future. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 says, But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And I think we take these sorts of verses out of context. The point is not that we're going to come home from church today and find a check for $10 million waiting for us nor that God is planning to give us a whole bunch of material things. The whole point of this passage is that God is unexpected from our perspective. These are the important things. Number one, God loves us. Number two, God is unexpected. Number three, God is smart and has a plan. Just because humans around you have a plan doesn't mean that things are going to work out. But when God has a plan, things happen. More than anything, God knows us and will find the right place for us. Sometimes I find myself using a screwdriver for a a hammer or or something like that. And there are times that we ask people around us to fill roles that are not ideal for them. But when God has a place designed for us, it will be perfect for us, even if it takes time for us to have all the edges knocked off, just like happened with Jacob.